Thank you for listening to this service from Calvary of Albuquerque. It's our hope that this message will help you grow in grace and in the knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Turn in your Bibles tonight to the 32nd chapter of the book of Exodus. Exodus chapter 32. Oh, as I figure, we'll get through one chapter because it's one of those great chapters. We don't really want to miss anything. Uh, Moses comes down off the mountain, back down to the camp in this chapter. Exodus chapter 32. Um, Just a reminder, if you made the wrong turn, that's what you're thinking perhaps. You ended up here tonight. You really didn't know how. You kind of got in the wrong direction. You find yourself seated here and you go, well, now what's going to happen? Well, let me tell you what's going to happen. We're going to have a Bible study until 8 o'clock. Is that right? 8.30. Yeah. Pretty bad when the guy up here doesn't know what time it is. So for just under the next hour, we're going to be in this chapter of the Bible. If that's too much for you, if that's too big of a commitment to make, um, we would simply ask, and we'll honor your choice. We won't get down on you. Um, we will just simply ask that as we bow our heads and pray once more for God to reveal Himself in His Word, that you would find a seat right next to an exit or uh, on the other side in the family room or somewhere in the foyer so that uh, if you decide to leave in the middle of the service, no one will notice you and you can go on your merry way and uh, you wouldn't be a distraction to the Word as it's being spoken. Let's pray. Lord, we do, as Paul said, to place ourselves before you and surrender ourselves before you as living sacrifices. And we do that. Our bodies are yours. You gave life to us. And here we are devoting this next almost hour of our time to think through with our minds and to apply in our lives the history The principles, the truths were spoken to Moses, through Moses, to your people thousands of years ago. And the lessons still live. The Word of God is alive. It's powerful. And we pray that it would powerfully work in everyone who has come. In Jesus' name, amen. In your mind, complete this sentence. I picture God as... I picture God as, because every day people are filling in the blank and answering that question or completing that sentence. I picture God as a smiling, tolerant grandfather in the sky. I picture God as a mystical force or essence surrounding all of the universe. Or I picture God as a distant, aloof, detached being who wound up the universe and walked away. Or I picture God not as a him, but as a her, the great goddess. Why a male? Why not a female? People have and carry around in their minds some picture, not everyone, but many people, a picture, an idea of what God is like. 
Why is that important? Well, J.I. Packer tells us why. J.I. Packer was, uh, some of you know, the um, professor of theology up at Regent College in Vancouver. He put it this way. Metal images are the consequence of mental images. People make out of wood or out of metal, they fashion an image based upon how they think God is. Metal images are the consequence of mental image. So, with that introduction, we come now to chapter 32 of the book of Exodus, where the people had something in their mind about God that really wasn't working out so far with Moses up on that mountain for a month and ten days. And they want to make things a little bit different. They want a visual reminder of God. And they will cast a metal image based upon a mental image. Chapter 32, I'm going to call it the uh uh-oh chapter of the book of Exodus. God delivers the people of Israel out of Egypt. So far, so good. They cross the Red Sea. So far, so good. A pillar of cloud and a... Um, pillar of fire at night helps them navigate. So far, so good. Moses goes up on the mountain, gets the Ten Commandments, gives them to the people. So far, so good. Goes back up again, gets the blueprints for the tabernacle, the priesthood, etc. So far, so good. Now we come to chapter 32 and it's, uh uh-oh. This isn't good. What happens here is, well, it's sort of like the Romans 7 of the Old Testament. You're going through the book of Romans, then suddenly Paul has this confessional chapter of, Oh, wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from the body of this death. And he speaks about how the law exacerbates his own sinful behavior and sinful heart and sinful mind. And how he cries out for deliverance and for redemption. That's sort of what we have here in the book of Exodus. The scene shifts. If this were a film and I were the cameraman, the camera that has been on Moses on the mountain quickly pans down to the valley where we look at the people. So we go from the mountaintop above with Moses to the valley floor beneath with the children of Israel. On the mountain there has been revelation. In the valley there is now imagination. Actually, there are only two sources of information that you can get about God. And one is revelation. God will reveal himself. He will disclose who he is. And he has done that through the Bible. He has revealed his character, his nature, his wishes, what he loves, what he hates, his plan for your life, all in the principles of the word of God. That's revelation. If you push revelation aside as we will see happens here, you are only left with making it up as you go along. Imagination. So either through God's revelation or man's imagination, people have a concept of who God is. So Moses has been on the mountain. Chapter 32, he goes down. See, that is is always the problem with the mountaintop experience. In every mountaintop experience, you got to come down the mountain. You know what it's like. You go to a retreat up in Glorietta, up in the mountains. The air is cool. The worship is great. The fellowship is perfect. Everything is good. You're challenged. You're, you're comforted. It's been a wonderful mountaintop experience at the retreat. And then you go back to life as normal. Go back down the mountain. 
And we find this principle throughout Scripture, even in the New Testament. Jesus went up on a high mountain, took His disciples with Him, especially Peter, James, and John. They saw this huge vision of Moses and Elijah transfigured with Jesus Christ, and they're talking about the coming kingdom. Wow! But then they came down the mountain, and what was meeting them? A demon-possessed man. Moses comes down the mountain, and what does he find? A people. His people. God's people. Engaged in idolatry and sinful revelry already. It only took a month and ten days. Idolatry is rampant in the camp. If you were to look up the word idol, or idols, or idolatry, you would find that it appears... 111 times in the Old Testament alone. Significantly less in the New Testament, but 111 times in the Old Testament. What is an idol? An idol is anything in your life that takes the place of God. Anything that you let divert attention away from the primary objective, and that is to know and to worship God. Uh, Things that aren't idols can become idols. But back to our story in chapter 32. It says, When the people saw that Moses delayed coming down from the mountain, the people gathered together to Aaron and said to him, Come, make us gods that shall go before us. Now stop right there. It's hard to have a relationship when the person you're having a relationship with you can't see. Invisible. Back in 1897, the author H.G. Wells wrote a fun little idea book called The Invisible Man. The idea of the invisible man is through modern chemistry, as modern as it could be back then, this man could make himself Invisible, so that he could be in a room, you would know he's in a room, he could choose to reveal himself or not, and you couldn't see him unless he did something, wore something, put paint on, or some kind of manifesting mechanism for people to see him. And what he discovered is that it wasn't a good idea to be invisible. That people started not trusting somebody they couldn't see. And nobody liked the idea of somebody being in the room, hearing them or watching them, if they didn't have the benefit of knowing he was in the room. The children of Israel, after one month and ten days, are struggling with this idea of the invisibility of God. Even Moses, we'll read about it in the next chapter. In chapter 33, even though Moses has seen incredible physical, visible manifestations of God, he cries to God in chapter 33, O God, show me your glory. He wants to see God. Basically, we're a people who are visual. We want to see. We can relate to what Isaiah said in Isaiah chapter 45, when Isaiah said, Verily, you are a God who hides himself. And like the little boy who said to his mommy, You sure God is up there? Oh, yes, sweetheart, he's up there. And then he said, Mommy, don't you wish he'd just poke his head through once in a while so we could see him? He's not the only one. 
Moses desired it. The people of Israel desired it. And that is what is so appealing to us about the coming of Jesus Christ. As it says in the New Testament, looking for that blessed hope and that glorious appearing of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. We want to see Him. We want to have the completion of our life when we can lay our eyes and behold Him. And we will, one day. Until that day, you and I are in a position of walking by faith and not by sight. After a month and ten days, the people of Israel got tired of that. So, they approached Aaron and they said, Come, let us make gods that shall go before us. As for this man Moses, the man who brought us up out of the land of Egypt, we do not know what has become of him seems that it's always hard for God's people to wait for God. We hate to wait. We sing, I must wait, wait, wait on the Lord, but I hate, hate, hate doing it. But the Bible says those who wait on the Lord will renew their strength. Yes, they will. But at first they'll lose their patience. It takes a while to gain your strength because we hate the idea of waiting on the Lord. We want instant gratification. And if God doesn't come through when we think He ought to come through, our whole belief system can tremble sometimes. I think we're seeing that with these people. Now, from their vantage point in the valley, looking up on Mount Sinai, if you remember the description, the Bible tells us that there were thunderings, there was lightning, There were these tremendous sounds, and it looked like the appearance of fire on the mountain. So they've been waiting a week, two weeks, five weeks, six weeks almost. And so they get a little bit antsy, and they figure, you know, he probably died in that explosion, that fire, whatever was going on up there. He probably died in it. He's not coming back down. So they're going to do something about it. Now, Now let me just set a record straight so your mind didn't go in the wrong direction. They're not switching gods here. They're going to do something that feels and looks a lot like something they would have seen in Egypt with pagan idolaters, but they're not switching gods here. What is happening here is they want a physical, visible manifestation or representation of the God that they're called to have a covenant with. And I say that because by the time we get down to verse 5, they're going to have a festival to Yahweh. They're going to make a golden calf, but have a festival to the Lord. And it's in capital letters in verse 5. And that always signifies in the Old Testament the covenant name with Yahweh. They, they knew the God they were called to worship and serve. But they're not worshiping God the way God wants to be worshipped. Verse 2. And Aaron said to them, Break off the golden earrings, which are in the ears of your wives, your sons, interesting, your daughters, and bring them to me. So all the people broke off the golden earrings, which were were in their ears, and brought them to Aaron. Now with that gold, they're going to make an idol, a representation, an image, an icon. If you remember in your mind back to Exodus chapter 20, the first two commandments, the first being, I am the Lord your God, you will have no other gods besides me or before me. 
And the second is you won't make an image to represent me. In terms of using that image to worship. So the first commandment was forbidding them to worship the wrong God or a false God. The second commandment was forbidding them to worship the right God in the wrong manner. That's just as important to God. Not only are you to worship the right God, but you're to worship the right God in the right manner. And part of that is you will have no images before me. Verse 4, And he received the gold from their hand, and he, that is Aaron now, this is the first high priest, This is Moses' bro. He was the co-leader before Pharaoh. He fashioned it with an engraving tool, and he made a molded calf. Then they, the people of Israel, said, This is your God, O Israel, that brought you out of the land of Egypt. And I can hear them chanting that over and over again. When Aaron saw it... Now... I've read this through several times, and when I was doing a fresh read this week, I always anticipate reading something like this. And when Aaron saw it, he came to his senses and was appalled and said, Oops, we made a mistake. Unfortunately, we don't read that. When Aaron saw it, he built an altar before it. And Aaron made a proclamation and said, Tomorrow is a feast to Yahweh, or feast to the Lord. So, what bizarre syncretism this is, or a mishmash of worship ideas. You've got an idol, you've got an altar, and you've got a feast to Yahweh. seems they're making it up as they go along. Verse 6, Then they rose early on the next day, offered burnt offerings, And brought peace offerings. And the people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. And if you have a new international version, it says to indulge in pagan revelry. The idea of the verb to play means to get involved in illicit, immoral, sexual behavior. The kind of worship practices that the Canaanites often practice. I've told you before about how they used to worship Baal, the chief god in nature. And that's the idea, is to rise up and play. In fact, listen to that verse in the Living Bible. It renders it this way. They sat down to feast, drink at a wild party, followed by sexual immorality. Now, what's the deal with this golden calf? Okay, where did they come from? What country had they been in? Egypt. In Egypt, one of the one of the representations in the pantheon of the gods that were worshipped was a bull by the name of Apis, A-P-I-S. He was the symbol of strength, power, virility. It seems that they wanted an image that represented Yahweh, this covenant God, as a strong God, a powerful God, a virile God. So what we have is God's people patterning their style of worship after what they had seen in the pagan land of Egypt. Just a little heads up on this idea of worshiping the bull. The chief god in Egypt, and it's hard to really ascertain what that was at what dynasty, but Osiris was often depicted as riding upon Apis the bull. 
using Apis as the platform to show off Osiris. The strength of Osiris was seen by the strength of Apis. That's how it was depicted in in the um, mythology of the Egyptians. So we have some problems going on here as to why they did it. I'm going to suggest a couple. Number one is peer pressure. It's good to have peers, and peer pressure can be good if it's good peer pressure. But this is bad peer pressure. The people of Israel lived in Egypt and were surrounded by a pagan style of worship. They were on their way to Canaan. Again, they will be surrounded by pagan worship. And in the camp of Israel is a group called the Mixed Multitude. Many of them are Egyptians. Word gets out, hey, you know, this whole Yahweh thing isn't working out for you guys, is it? This Moses, this mediator, he's not coming back, is he? You know, we always had visible representations of our gods. We could we could be reminded of how strong and powerful that God is when we had icons. I don't know what channels this idea went through, but the gold was cast and they had their pagan idol. You ought to know something about images in ancient times. It was more than just a depiction. The belief of the ancient worshipers was that the spirit of the God would reside in the icon itself. So that whatever happened around the icon or to the icon, the God, wherever that God would be, would sense and feel those things and be able to relate to people through the icon. So in ancient Egypt and in ancient Mesopotamia, uh, they would often have ritualistic practices of bathing the gods, cleaning them up, which made the gods really happy. And then they would put clothes, little fashion statements on their gods, which again would make the gods really happy. You dressed your god up today. And then they would bring food offerings like milk and meat and place it before the idol. And their belief was that the God itself was deriving strength from the human food placed in front of the icon. Now, excuse me, but I don't want to worship any God that I have to dress. Been there, done that. They're called children. I don't want to have to worship any God that I have to feed all the time. But that was the belief system, and that seems to be the idea that has permeated the camp of Israel peer pressure. So many people around them were worshiping God a completely different way, this singular way. They just didn't get into it. God was invisible. They need a visual representation. Here's another problem, and I believe this is really at the heart of idolatry in general, and that is the problem of personal loss. If I say, well, I need a statue to remind me of God that indicates something about myself, that my relationship with God is so weak that I need a reminder. People that have an intimate, close, ongoing, abiding relationship with Christ, they don't need a reminder. Friedrich Nietzsche once said, God is dead. I beg to differ. I just spoke to him this morning. He's alive and well, and everything's under control. But when a person makes an idol, it's making the statement about the person that he has lost intimacy with God, and he is trying desperately to gain back that intimacy by carving a reminder 
to on cue remind him of the God that he lost. Now let me throw something else at you. Did you know that the incident here in chapter 32, and this is why I'm slowing down on this chapter, this will become as important almost in the history and the annals of Israel as the Exodus itself. What I mean by that is, as the story of Exodus will be told and retold and retold throughout Jewish history, what happens in this chapter becomes a blot on their historical record, and they're reminded of this time and time again. And I'm just going to give you one scripture. There are several, but I just wanted to trim it down. And this is out of Psalm 106, verse 19. They made a calf in Horeb and worshipped the molded image. Thus they changed their glory into an image of an ox that eats grass. They forgot God, their Savior, who had done great things in Egypt, wondrous works in the land of Ham, awesome things by the Red Sea. Therefore, he said that he would destroy them had not Moses, his chosen one, stood before him in the breach to turn away his wrath, lest he destroy them. So this failure becomes a blot that will never go away. It will be woven into Jewish history and retold throughout generations by the psalmist, by the prophet Ezekiel, by Stephen in the book of Acts chapter 7 as he recalls the history of Israel before the Sanhedrin. Verse 7. The Lord said to Moses, Go, get down. Now, he didn't mean this in a rhythmic sense. Like, dude, get down, Moses. But literally, physically, descend, get down. For your people, whom you brought out of the land of Egypt, have corrupted themselves. Interesting. Did you notice how God put that? See, up to this point, God has always called them my people. He has. He's called them my people. These are my people that I'm bringing out. Now he says, Moses, your people whom you brought out of Egypt... Does that sort of sound like a husband and wife when the son or daughter misbehaves? I'm so proud of my boy until he misbehaves. Your son, you wouldn't believe what he did today. Well, understand, Don't please don't place God in that position. There's a deeper reason for that I'll get to in a moment. Verse 8, they have turned aside quickly out of the way which I commanded them. They have made themselves a molded calf and worshipped it and sacrificed to it and said, This is your God, O Israel, that brought you out of the land of Egypt. Now, it could be that if you're not familiar with this text or you're sort of new to Bible study, you might be thinking at this point, Okay, so what's the big deal for God to not allow a visual idea or representation, a form of him on the earth. What's the big deal? If, if, if the people of Israel are weak in their faith and they need a visual, why wouldn't God let them have a visual? I'm glad you asked that. Or I'm glad I asked that for you. Number one, any image made of God obscures the glory of God. And this image of Apis the bull, or God Yahweh, as the strong commanding type with a gold calf, obscured the glory of God. Here's why. God is spirit. God is 
unlimited in his essence and his nature. God is boundless. If he's limitless, he's boundless because he is spiritual. The moment you make a physical image of God, I don't care what representation it is, you are now limiting God by casting him as an image. You are denying some of the very basic nature of God and that God is unlimited and boundless. So it obscures the glory of God. The prophet Isaiah said, To whom will you liken God? Or what likeness will you compare to God? What representation could possibly be made by the world's best artist that would capture all of God's glory? Answer is none. God transcends any depiction of him. Thus, to limit God by a depiction, according to God, is wrong. Now, here's the belief in Egypt. Go back to Egypt for a moment. The belief was that a flash of light happened over a cow in Egypt at some point in their history, like a lightning bolt or this brilliant flash of light that hovered over a cow. And the result was that the calf that was born was this deity, Apis the bull. Apis the bull was born by a flash of light that came from heaven. What did the people see as they looked up on that mountain? Flashes of light. It reminded them of the myth of the Egyptians that they had been raised with for years. And so... They made this representation. Okay, I get it. God is strong. That's what you're trying to say by the golden calf. But, but, the golden calf says nothing about God's moral characteristics. His love, his grace, his goodness, his mercy. None of that is represented by the strength and virility of a golden calf. Number two, not only do images obscure the glory of God, images mislead people. It's not just what statement you're making by the image. It's what is left out. These sort of dovetail points one and two. But it's what the image doesn't reveal about God. It's a psychological fact that if you focus on an image of the one that you're praying to, you come to picture the one you're praying to as the image it represents. So, they're picturing a strong, commanding, virile God in Apis the Bull. What is their worship like? Strong, frenzied worship. Their worship is commiserate with the depiction they have made of God in the golden calf. So they're worshiping him in a strong, frenzied kind of a fashion because that's the depiction, that's what they're focusing on. So, if I pray to a depiction of Jesus Christ hanging on a cross the greatest work he ever did upon the earth. His sacrifice for me, he bloodied himself, he paid for my sins as we sang tonight. As wonderful as that act is, I'm looking at that image, I can fixate upon that image, and my worship can, I'm not saying always will, but can become a morbid kind of worship. And there are groups of people that crawl on their knees to shrines, bloody themselves up, beat themselves with whips because of that image, that icon, that picture of Jesus suffering for them. Their worship is filled with pain and suffering because of this very, very fact. It obscures the glory of God and it can mislead people in the totality of the revelation of God. Verse 9. 
And the Lord said to Moses, I have seen this people, and indeed it is a stiff-necked people. Now therefore let me alone, that my wrath may burn hot against them, that I may consume them, and I will make of you, Moses, a great nation. Do you hear what he's saying here? Do you understand that God, by that last couple of sentences, is basically offering Moses the deal that he made to Abraham? Back in Genesis chapter 12, God said to Abraham, Abraham, I'm going to make out of you a great nation. Out of your family. I'm going to start with you. I brought you out of Ur of the Chaldees, and it's through you and your progeny that I'm going to make a great nation. So there was Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and the sons of Jacob, and they multiplied in Egypt, and God is saying, you know what? I'm willing to start from scratch, to get rid of all of them, and do what I did with Abraham again through you, Moses. Now, I wonder if I were in Moses' shoes what I would do if that offer were made me. Now, I don't know how much you know about the wilderness wanderings or what Moses had to put up with and how much he bore the complaints and the angst and the anger and the threats for years of the people of Israel. But if God made this offer, especially a little bit later on in Moses' experience, I'd be tempted to take the offer. But Moses pleaded with the Lord, verse 11. He pleaded with the Lord his God, and he said, Lord, why does your wrath burn hot against, listen, your people whom you have brought out of the land of Egypt? With great power and a mighty hand. So I'm doing that on purpose. I want you to compare those two verses. In fact, go back to verse 7. The Lord said to Moses, get down. For your people whom you brought out of the land of Egypt have corrupted themselves. Verse 11, Moses pleaded with the Lord as God, Lord, why does your wrath burn hot against your people whom you brought out of the land of Egypt with great power and a mighty hand? Now let me tell you that I believe that the reason God phrased it to Moses as he did in verse 11 was to draw something out of Moses. And that was intercession. God had a plan. God had a purpose. He wasn't like vacillating and fluctuating. He makes a threat, but not a decree. I'll get back to that in a moment. But what he's doing is saying this. He wants Moses to hear it. It sort of shocks him. Moses starts praying. And what's interesting is he prays not as much for the people as for the glory and honor of God, the reputation that God's going to get around the world if If he were to kill these people and start all over again, it would be a bad rap on God's character. So he reminds God that they're his people, that it was a covenant that he made with Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, and God's been faithful to that. Reminding God of the promise, not because God had forgotten, but he's standing upon the word, the promise that God has made. God is trying to draw out from Moses Intercession. He wants Moses involved in praying for his people, and he does. Moses continues in verse 12, Why should the Egyptians speak and say, He, Yahweh, brought them out to harm them, to kill them in the mountains, and to consume them from the face of the earth? Turn from your fierce wrath and relent from this harm to your people. Remember Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, your servants to whom you swore by your own self, And said to them, I will multiply your descendants as the stars of heaven 
And all this land that I have spoken of, I will give to your descendants, and they shall inherit it forever. So the Lord relented from the harm which he said he would do to his people. This verse bothers lots of folks. The idea of God relenting, or as the old King James put it, repenting, when the Bible in the Old Covenant, in the Old Testament, God says, I am not a man, God is not a man that he should lie, or the son of man that he should repent. So why is the word used here by Moses, the author of this book, saying, so the Lord relented? We call this, you will call this, an anthropomorphism. You may want to write that down. You'll impress people if you say it tomorrow. Anthropomorphism. An anthropomorphism is expressing in human language a divine response, a divine action, a divine activity expressed in human language is an anthropomorphism. It's simply because God is invisible, God is outside our time and space continuum, God is transcendent, and the only way humans are going to figure God out at all or understand God is to have Him somewhat expressed in human terms. The eyes of the Lord go to and fro throughout the earth. That's an anthropomorphism. The hand of God was upon me, said Ezra. That's an anthropomorphism. God doesn't have eyes necessarily or two hands. Any more than as David said, I hide under the shadow of the Lord's wings. God isn't a chicken. These are depictions that humans get to describe a divine action or a divine response. This is how I see it. God never does anything outside of the boundaries of his own nature and character. God is not changing his mind. He knew exactly what he was going to do. He makes a threat, not a decree, to destroy them. And it was the threat that perked Moses up and got him on his knees to pray for his people. A good reminder. We see things happening in our country and go, oh man, could this be it? Could this be the judgment? I'm going to pray for our country. Good! It's good to be perked up, to be woken up by these reminders. Verse 15, And Moses turned, and he went down from the mountain. The two tablets of the testimony were in his hand. Can you picture that old guy walking, walking with the two stone tablets? The tablets were written on both sides. On one side and on the other side they were written. Now, the tablets were the work of God, and the writing was the writing of God engraved on tablets. That just fascinates me. I wonder what God's penmanship was like. What those letters looked like as Moses could read them and was about, he thought, to show them to the people of Israel. He won't get that privilege. He would be the only ones to see that writing. Those stone tablets would be broken before we got down to the valley floor. And when Joshua heard the noise of the people as they shouted, he said to Moses, there's the noise of war in the camp. Okay, so what's going on? Moses is coming down. He meets Moses before he gets down. Probably Moses was somewhere in the vicinity because the Bible tells us he was the servant of Moses. He was the assistant. He was there to care for any needs that Moses might have. So as his assistant mediator or assistant pastor or what have you, He meets Moses. He has heard the noise of the people. Now, Moses will become the general. 
He's a man of war. So he hears a noise and he thinks, there's fighting going on. It's the first thing that comes to Joshua's mind. He's a soldier. He said, it's the noise of war in the camp. But Moses said, it is not the noise of the shout of victory, nor the noise of the cry of defeat, but it's the sound of singing that I hear. These people are worshiping. So it was, as soon as he came near the camp, that he saw the calf and the dancing. So Moses' anger became hot. A few verses ago, Moses was trying to, it seemed, tame God down a little bit. God, why is your anger so hot against these people? I can't believe it. Just a few steps down the mountain... It says, Moses' anger became hot, and he cast the tablets out of his hands, and he broke them at the foot of the mountain. Why did he break them? It was symbolic in breaking, literally, the stone tablets that the people of Israel, God's people, this nation, had broken God's laws. Then he took the calf, which they had made, burned it in the fire, I imagine it was made out of wood, overlaid with gold, as many of the images were. Burned it in the fire, and he ground it to powder. So now you've got powdered dust, gold calf. And he scattered it on the water, and he made the children of Israel drink it. That's hardcore. I'm going to take your God... Grind it up, and you're all going to drink it. It's sort of like Alka-Seltzer in reverse. Instead of taking away an upset stomach, I imagine drinking powdered golden calf and mixed with water, that that would give you an upset stomach. And maybe that's exactly what Moses wanted them to have, an upset stomach. I want you to be sick of your sin. Something else, and I'm not trying to press the analogy, forgive me if it seems that way, but it was brought up in a couple different commentaries. In drinking that, it would eventually become their waste. And that's what God thought of their idol. It was a very, very poignant moment. He ground it up. He made them drink it. So I'd like a golden calf latte. Actually, if the calf was... Gone, it would be a decaf latte, wouldn't it? (laughs) Sorry, sorry, it just came to my mind. There's no calf anymore. Okay, that ranks, that's got to rank up there in the top three bad ones, right? How do you recover and get serious and spiritual after such nonsense? Well, I'll try. We can see, as we go through this little text, why the people of Israel will become very adamant about not having idols. Okay, they're going to go back and forth between idolatry their whole history, but... When they, when they do come to those periods of coming to their senses, they're really, really animate about not having idols. Let me tell you a story about, this sort of fits in with it. 
And we're going to fast forward to the New Testament because the second commandment about not including images in worship was so potent to the Jews that in part it led to the crucifixion of Jesus Christ. When Pontius Pilate in the New Testament, the governor of Judea, he'd only reigned for five years. He was young. He was inexperienced. His his posture in dealing with the Jewish population, especially in Jerusalem, was so flawed that his career was at stake because he made two bad mistakes. Mistake number one, Pontius Pilate had these ensigns made, these depictions made uh, on on the banners or on the poles of Roman soldiers. And on the front of the ensign was uh, an image of Caesar in Rome. He did it to honor Caesar. The soldiers marched through the city of Jerusalem with these image-laden ensigns. And when the Jews saw an image going through the holy city of Jerusalem, they sent a delegation to Caesarea, where Pontius Pilate had his main headquarters in the country. They went to Caesarea, and they demanded that Pontius Pilate remove the ensigns from the city of Jerusalem. Pontius Pilate thought, who are these Jews ordering me around? He had his soldiers take their swords out and say, we're going to cut your heads off. What happened next, Pilate didn't expect. The Jews who were threatened fell to the ground, ripped their collar down, bared their necks, and say, please, cut them off now. We're not going to back down. Go ahead and cut our heads off. Another delegation will come. We're not backing off this. This so bewildered Pontius Pilate that he indeed had the ensigns removed from Jerusalem. Caesar heard about that, and it was a strike against Pilate. A few years later, Pilate did it again. This time he took shields and put a a depiction of Tiberius Caesar on the front of the shields and gave them to the soldiers who manned the fortress in Jerusalem, the Antonia Fortress, uh, the main bulwark of Roman authority there in Jerusalem. And so those, those shields were, were placed in his palace and in the Antonia Fortress. The Jews, at this point, forgot about going to Pilate. They sent a letter and protested to Caesar himself, this time Caesar Tiberius, demanding that the shields be removed. Caesar wrote a letter rebuking Pontius Pilate, and he ordered the shields removed. So now there's two strikes. The next infraction could be seen as insurrection against Rome and could cost Pilate his job. So when Jesus is brought before Pontius Pilate, and Pilate says, I see nothing in him that deserves death. I see no fault in this man. I wash my hands of this man. I'm going to let him go free. The Jewish people said, if you let him go free, you are no friend of Caesar's. That was a threat. In other words, we know that there's two strikes against you. He's going to hear about this. His job was at stake. And when he said, you're no friend of Caesar's, that's when Pilate turned. Demanded that Jesus be flogged and committed him to be crucified. So this law has a very potent foothold in the history of the Jews throughout. Verse 21. I better hurry up. Moses said to Aaron, What did this people do to you that you have brought so great a sin upon them? So Aaron said, Do not let the anger of my Lord become hot. That sounds like Moses talking to God a few verses ago. You know the people that they are set on evil. For they said to me, 
Make us gods that shall go before us. As for this Moses, the man who brought us out of the land of Egypt, we do not know what has become of him. And I said, whoever has any gold, let them break it off. So they gave it to me. Now watch this. I cast it into the fire and this calf came out. (laughs) This is Aaron. I thought Aaron was brighter than that. But you know what? When you sin, you'll come up with any lame excuse. You know what a lame excuse is, right? The reason I am the way I am is because of you. The reason I lose my keys is I always put them down here and you move them. Whatever it might be. It seemed that we, we always want to blame either people or furnaces. Either people or circumstances. Never my fault. I'm always the victim. It's their fault or it's the circumstance, the furnace's fault. I just put the gold inside the fire and out walked a golden calf. Dude, it was awesome. You should have been here. Actually, if you want to hear about clever excuses, talk to a police officer. They hear them all the time. I heard one. A policeman pulled over a guy. He had run two red lights, ran right through him. When the police pulled him over and said, what's the deal? You ran two red lights. The man in the car said, this is a V8. You try stopping it. As if he had no control at all. Sounds a lot like this. So Moses saw that the people were unrestrained. It means they had given up all moral restraint. And then Moses stood in the entrance of the camp and said, Whoever is on the Lord's side, come to me. And all the sons of Levi gathered themselves to him. And he said, Thus says the Lord God of Israel, Let every man put on his sword on his side and go in from the entrance to enter. Remember, there's at least two to three million people in the camp of Israel to go from one end to the other throughout the camp. And every man kill his brother, every man his companion, every man his neighbor. And so the sons of Levi did according to the word of Moses and about three thousand men of the people fell that day. Now, apparently it would seem that these 3,000 men that were struck down were the ones that persisted in idolatry. They wouldn't give it up. They were bent on it. They were unrestrained. They wouldn't relent. They wouldn't change. 3,000 out of about 3 million, that's about, what, one one-thousandth of the people refused to change. So 3,000 is a lot of people, but in comparison, it's a minority. This is what I want you to compare. This is day one of Moses coming down from the mountain with a new covenant, or the the old covenant, the Mosaic covenant, right? The covenant of Moses. Now get this. On the first day that the covenant of the law opens up, 3,000 people die. Fast forward to the New Testament. The first day the new covenant opens up on the day of Pentecost, 3,000 people are saved. Compare law and grace, and there is a graphic example of just what happened on the first day. Why kill the people? Any doctor knows the reason why. Sometimes radical surgery has to be done. When the doctor says, and in our family we know what this is like, when the doctor said to my wife a few years ago, there is a tumor, we're going to operate on it in a couple of days. Now, I could say, why would you 
cut into my wife, that's going to hurt. That's so mean to cut out a part of her body. Why would you dare cut something out and make her hurt? It's to save her life. Cutting out this tumor, these 3,000 people, that I believe, had they persisted, they could have stopped the children of Israel from entering into the promised land. This cancer could spread so quickly. And so, 3,000 died that day. How could such a thing happen so quickly? How could it be, think about it, they had heard, they had seen lightning and thunder. They had said just 40 days before this, Moses, Moses, go find out what God wants and tell us what God wants. Whatever God wants, we'll do it all. How could they go from that in 40 days to this? Well, how could Ananias and Sapphira in the New Testament shortly after the resurrection of Jesus Christ, lie to the Holy Spirit? How could the church at Corinth, established on good godly principles, become so immoral so quick? It's the nature of man. It's the nature of fallen humanity. I'm going to call it spiritual entropy. That's a term from the law of thermodynamics. Spiritual entropy as as heat energy has gotten lost and is irrecoverable. There's this spiritual entropy that sets in. We have to fight against it. That's why the Bible says that we should gather together frequently and encourage one another daily. Encourage one another daily as that day approaches. Man at his best is at best still man. And they are falling back to their old pattern of behavior. Then Moses said, Consecrate yourselves today to the Lord that he may bestow on you a blessing this day. For every man has opposed his son and his brother. Now it came to pass on the next day that Moses said to the people, You have committed a great sin, so now I will go up to the Lord. Perhaps I can make atonement for your sin or provide a covering for it. And Moses returned to the Lord and said, Oh, these people have committed a sin. They have made for themselves a God of gold. Yet now, if you will forgive their sin, but if not, I pray, blot me out of your book, which you have written. Huh. Blot me out of your book, which you have written? Is it possible to be blotted out of God's book? We're going to have to wait till next week to find that out. Let's pray. Lord, what happened that day was an act of judgment, but an act of mercy. You were sparing a nation that hadn't even gotten a foothold in a land they were so far away from. But you were committed to them. Even though their commitment to you had waned, they had forsaken a commandment that they knew, and Aaron certainly knew it already. But again we see, and we understand from personal experience, that man at his best is at best still man.
Lord, I pray that as the day approaches, as we find troubling times that we live in, as we get shaken by reports, we might even get shaken by economic instability or just the barrage of bad news about our country, its politicians, the economy, etc., etc., that we would encourage one another. We would be banded together as brothers and sisters, reminding ourselves of your truths, your word, your promises. And Lord, we will say, as you wanted Moses to say, we are your people. These are your people. They are not my people. They are no human leaders' people. They are your people. And we trust that you're going to take care of every single one of them. Lord, I pray that if there's any excuses we're hiding behind, even the excuse for not coming to Jesus Christ, whatever lame excuse we would have, it is lame because you are a God of love, willing to forgive, willing to eradicate our past, willing to write our name in your book of life, which can never be eradicated. So, Father, settle our hearts. Cause worship, Lord, to well in us, not just at the end of a service or at the beginning, but as the response of our heart daily. Thank you for your people. Thank you for this time. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for listening to this service from Calvary of Albuquerque. If you would like more information about what you've heard in this message or about Calvary of Albuquerque, please visit our website at www.calvaryabq.org. If you have made a decision to follow Christ or would like someone to pray for you, please leave a message with our prayer watch line at 505-344-3658. Thank you and God bless.